Does it include weddings? You've anticipated my joke, thanks. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> then I will pretend I, I didn't make a joke. <laughs> It's Friday, January the 22nd, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News Contributing Editor and International Haggis Smuggler, and with me today is Paul Peters, Master's Student in Civil Engineering and Belgian Constitution Expert. Later on in the podcast, we'll be talking to our guest for this week, Ben Coates, Rotterdam-based writer and aid worker who's evolved in the last year into one of the sharpest critics of the Dutch coronavirus strategy. I should say as well, we recorded that interview on Wednesday before the uh, before we knew for sure that the government was going to bring in curfew, and also we recorded it on Zoom, so the sound quality is maybe not quite as good as uh, as you're used to uh, on our podcast, but the content is is much more sensible and cogent, so that it kind of balances out, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Um, Gordon, yeah. this is the fourth time I am looking at your face on uh, on Zoom <laughs> right now. Uh, that, that In a week. Alarming, yes. <laughs> it is alarming, yeah, because yeah. we recorded, of course, the usual Friday <laughs> podcast, and we had the emergency podcast on yeah. Saturday because the cabinet uh, resigned and we didn't pay any attention to it, which seemed a little bit weird for a current affairs show. Well, the, 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 they were discourteous enough to resign while we were actually recording, so yeah, th- th- that was their fault, <laughs> yeah, really, exactly. not ours. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then on uh, Wednesday we had the interview with Ben Coates, yeah. so I had to look at your face again, and now it's Friday morning, and uh, well, here we are. And now we have to talk about haggis. What what is this stuff with haggis? Well, it's haggis. Well, on Monday, this coming Monday coming up is is Burns Night, which is uh, the um, event on the on, on the Scottish calendar where we celebrate the birthday of um, Robert Burns, uh, our national bird, and therefore everyone eats haggis, uh, recites uh, poetry that they don't actually understand, and uh, yeah, and uh, and drinks. Uh, 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 a lot of whiskey and um, uh, yeah, and, and dress up in uh, d- d- dress up in kilts and uh, frilly shirts. So that that I'll, I'll be doing some of those things on Monday night. And one of the things I will be doing is eating haggis because I've managed to procure a haggis uh, by secret channels. <laughs> Don't want to say too much, um, but obviously because of Brexit now, you can't export meat products. No. Um, from the UK unless you fill in about six different pieces of paperwork um, and uh, because they don't want any food product contaminated food products um, coming across the North Sea and uh, if there's one yeah there's one food product that is deeply suspicious that is haggis no one's quite sure what's in it <laughs> yeah. uh, but I've, I've got I've got yeah. around this basically by um, uh, uh, smuggling the haggis in I don't want to say too much but um, uh, I might or might not have uh, arranged for it to be uh, concealed within uh, an enormous shipping container full of cocaine going into Rotterdam because <laughs> you, you, I know that that's not going to have that's any problems That's the best way to smuggle stuff in the Netherlands, yeah. Yeah. No, in all seriousness, it's a vegetarian haggis, basically. That's it. So uh, it's... Oh. It, it's uh, uh, Does it count as haggis then? It is actually haggis. Vegetarian haggis is, is, is not too bad. It's been done by a proper haggis butcher. Um, okay. Uh, so, yeah, I've had it before. It's, uh, it's very tasty. It's much healthier. And you can still combine it with whiskey, so it's absolutely fine. That's the point. Are there any inflatable hats involved uh, in your national holiday or not? No inflatable hats. No. In fact, no hat. No hats. Okay, that I don't. That I don't recognize it as an <laughs> as an official holiday. Uh, be, be, you are supposed to bring the haggis in on a uh, on a silver dish. Um, <laughs> on your hat. 
no, 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 no. Yeah, underneath your hat. No. Yeah, that's another way you can smuggle them in. But uh, no, uh, you have, you, you, you just, you're supposed to bring the haggis into the room um, on a silver dish, uh, led by mm. a piper who pipes uh, some kind of tune. I don't know what kind of tunes you actually play to a haggis. I have to look that up. But yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, dressed in the film. Lots of mysteries uh, involved in this. Uh, There's a lot <laughs> of ceremony. Yeah, yeah, involved in yeah. eating haggis. It's not just a thing that you put it, so you shove in the oven and pull out two hours later. Uh, yeah. Okay. So well, interesting. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's your primer on uh, Scottish uh, constitutional um, law. Um, <laughs> but you've been busy this week with the Belgian constitution, I believe. Yeah, uh, I was pointed out to. What is probably the most Belgian thing ever uh, this week, um, and that is that the Belgian flag is unconstitutional. Mm. Why is that? It is because in the Belgian constitution, it says that the colors of the Belgian flag are red, yellow and black. However, at some point, probably very early when Belgium was formed in, I believe, 1831, uh, they changed this order into uh, black, yellow and red for aesthetic reasons, because they wanted to have the black field of the flag uh, on the side of the flagpole. Yeah. Um, but they never bothered to change the order in the constitution. Hmm. And nobody noticed until somewhere in the 90s. <laughs> and then this uh, Belgian MP proposed to change the constitution because he, he figured the flag that we are flying for uh, almost two centuries right now, one and a half centuries, it, hmm. you know, is incorrect. It's um, unconstitutional, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is unconstitutional. Uh, then all the MPs who were listening to him started laughing at him uh, and uh, started to ridicule him. Um, but the best thing about this is that the name of this MP was uh, Jacques Standard. Oh, Jacques Standard. Good. So I thought it was yes, a very, indeed. very fitting name for, uh, for 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 this MP to to uh, to uh, yeah be involved in the in this flag business. So um, yeah, it it is the I think the most Belgian thing ever to <laughs> to have a wrong flag in your constitution. Yeah, yeah. So does that mean that uh, that the every every Belgian embassy around the world is actually um, uh, not not properly constituted and. Uh, Therefore, that, that, that doesn't qualify as diplomatic territory. This is uh, quite. This could have quite far-reaching well, well, consequences. This could be. This could be a real <laughs> implication. Yeah. 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 And I uh, and I had more fun with uh, with constitutions uh, this week because uh, Joe Biden was inaugurated as the president of the United States, of course, on Wednesday. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, he took the oath a few minutes before noon. It was eleven minutes before noon. So when he took mm. the oath, everybody started celebrating. We we finally got rid of Trump. But you yeah. know, I I read the <laughs> U.S. Constitution and I knew that uh, taking mm. the oath is not. The moment uh, his presidential term will will start, um, yeah. uh, uh, it, that is at noon, exactly at noon. So there were yeah. still eleven more minutes to go um, uh, with the with the Trump presidency. So I pointed yeah. that out, much to the annoyance <laughs> of a lot of people, including Molly. Um, but then I uh, I could make the joke four more minutes to her um, uh, because she uh, replied <laughs> to me five minutes before noon. Excellent. So I was very happy with that joke. Yeah. That was a great moment, yeah. Yeah, the alarming thing, of course, was that Trump, uh, when he went, when he flew off to Florida, because he didn't go to the ceremony, because he was in a big huff, um, he took the nuclear yeah. football with him, didn't he? So, I mean, he could yeah. have just activated the codes at that point. 
Yeah, indeed. And and <laughs> the real problem was, what are we going to do at noon? Because we have this nuclear football, this device with with mm. which you can uh, uh, fire off all these nuclear uh, uh, bombs and missiles. Um, one of them is in Florida. What what are we going to do at noon? Because you know, at any moment, the president needs to uh, counter counter attack a, a, a nuclear strike, for example. But they they prepared, I believe, two nuclear footballs. One went with Trump to Florida, and one stayed in Washington D.C. So at oh. noon, um, uh, uh, Trump's uh, nuclear football was deactivated, and the other one t- uh, could take over. So they had a they had a solution for it. Luckily, yeah, and the world breathed a sigh of relief. Yeah, yeah, okay. indeed. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> talking of uh, big blow ups, um, that brings us around to uh, this week's uh, op ed for the week in what was not at all a clumsy link. Um, so tell us uh, what was going on in Amsterdam at the weekend. <laughs> yeah, the Opeth of the Week comes from the capital because on Sunday a large number of people protested against the cabinet's uh, corona measures. The protest was banned, however, by Amsterdam Mayor Femke Halsma because in several Telegram group chats demonstrators were called on uh, to use violence. Uh, they referred to the storming of the US capital on January 6th. I was very uh, curious what exactly they were going to storm at the Museumplein in Amsterdam. Uh, mm. The Concertgebouw or uh, something else? Because there's absolutely no... Um, a governmental building situated on that on that square, but you know, that's a, that's a different uh, different question. Yeah, the the, the state, stately museum, maybe. The, the, yeah, the new entrance to Van Gogh. Despite the ban, around 2,000 people showed up at the Museumplein in Amsterdam. Riot police used water cannons to break up the protest after several people started to take stones from the streets. Around 150 people were arrested and the police said three horses were hit on the head by uh, protesters. Enormous ophef broke loose when RTV Noord-Holland interviewed a man uh, on the square who turned out to be a huisarts, a uh, general practitioner in Limburg. He hmm. said um, uh, the coronavirus is a hoax that most intensive care units are empty and that doctors receive 20,000 euros per corona patient as a reward. He added that these stories are never told on television even though he was at that moment live on television. Um, (laughs) Many people on social media were outraged and asked uh, how someone like that could be a doctor while on the other side uh, of the sanity spectrum he was welcomed as a hero. (laughs) Diederik Gommers described the man's statement as painful and dangerous. Uh, Regional news channel L1 asked the man to comment on the OPEF. He said he hadn't thought a number of his statements through and wanted to set the record straight. He refused to say which of his statements he wanted to correct, though. The health hmm. inspectorate has announced they will look into the doctor from Limburg. Yeah, that was quite a remarkable interview. I hadn't appreciated that the guy was actually a doctor. That was uh, that was news to me. Yeah, he, he looked more like a guy who just um, I don't know escaped from some kind of institution. <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he escaped from Limburg, which yeah. could be regarded as an open well, institution. Yeah, th- that was the whole thing. Uh, this video went viral at first, and then uh, you know the 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 corona wappies, as we call them, the 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 conspiracy theorists. They pointed out, yeah, this man is an actual doctor, so you hmm. better listen to him, <laughs> even though um, you know we have thousands and thousands of other doctors who they refuse to listen to. So yeah, um, um, yeah. Uh, it, uh, it turned out he was a um, <laughs> is not a r- r- real doctor, I believe. He's a homeo. Homeo- he's a um, homeopath yeah 
Yeah, 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 a yeah. homeopath doctor. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'm not sure if he has a real uh, doctor um, diploma, uh, but yeah, yeah that is uh, something the health inspectorate will uh, will take a look at. As a homeopathic doctor, he should have welcomed the water cannon because uh, you know the, 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 <laughs> that, that would have that would have increased his immunity, presumably uh, using using lots of water. So. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Maybe add some uh, some uh, lavender to to that water. And, uh, exactly. It's a, yeah. it's a magical yeah. poison. You'd, you'd have cured everybody on the spot. Yeah. yeah. Don't need the vaccine anymore. This week, we tell you why the government brought in an avant clock, even though Mark Ritter thinks it's a terrible idea, how the vaccination plan is progressing, and how police dealt with a slippery customer who was disrupting traffic in Zeeland. It's a terrible idea. I don't want one. I'm tired of Corona. That was Mark Rutter in Parliament on Thursday confirming that his government would indeed introduce a curfew, or avant clock, as it's known in Dutch. Rutter said the curfew was essential to stop the spread of the B117 strain, or the English virus, as he called it, which is around 30% more virulent. Although there was a lot of resistance from coalition and opposition parties, or former coalition, we should say, now that the government's collapsed, the government did make one concession. They pushed the start time back by half an hour to nine o'clock. <laughs> Dyson's Zestach leader, Rob Yesen, said this was essential for people who needed to walk around the block after a hard day's working, studying, or homeschooling, or perhaps getting enraged by the size of politicians spending five hours deliberating whether to shave 30 minutes off the curfew time. <laughs> the curfew will run until February the 9th, initially. Yeah, it was... Uh, I was watching this debate, and uh, I didn't watch it in full, but uh, in the end I got this push notifications, you know, from the NOS and the NSA and whatever, uh, that uh, that the curfew... Uh, yeah, we will have a curfew, but it will start uh, 30 minutes later. And yeah. and I was like, if they successor in the weekly... Um, coalition meeting on Monday would have just said we will we don't want a curfew but we will accept it when it's in half an hour later then mm -hmm. uh, then we wouldn't have needed this debate right <laughs> this debate could have yeah. been an email it should <laughs> have been an a, email it should have been a tweet really yeah yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> it was a classic um sort of uh, dutch polder compromise though wasn't it i mean this is had all these objections to why the curfew is a bad idea and shouldn't we bring in flights instead and they went on and on about all, for all these uh, listed all these reasons not to have a curfew and then uh, someone popped up with how about we start half an hour later and they said yeah fine <laughs> yeah yeah that's exactly <laughs> what happens very very <laughs> annoying um so uh are there any exceptions to the curfew i desperately want to know Yes, uh, Justice Minister Fred Krapperhaus uh, said the list of exceptions have been kept as short as possible to ensure the rules are easy to follow and easy to police. There's a €95 Euro fine if you break the curfew without a valid reason. Valid reasons include going to work or coming home from work. You'll need a permission slip from your employer, although if you're self-employed, you can write your own. Also, oh. people who are providing medical care or support those making essential journeys abroad, people sitting exams or attending court hearings, guests on late-night talk shows, and justice ministers holding large family gatherings complete with snapping paparazzi. <laughs> or oh, possibly not that last one. But, uh, the, yeah, but presumably the, the fines will no longer be enforced once a fair crapper house is spotted out walking his, uh, his neighbour's dog uh, in company with somebody else. Um, or his wife. To, yeah, that brings us on to dog walkers, which perhaps caused the most up-hair for all this, uh, and lead, led lots of speculation that the Dutch will have the world's fittest dogs by the end the curfew because everybody yeah. will borrow their neighbors dogs so they can go go out for a walk after nine o'clock and there was a huge amount of op about this yeah even though i i 
I truly doubt how if if it's uh, uh, how many people are actually uh, outside after 9 p.m. on a winter night. Uh, I think that number is probably uh, very much exaggerated by people who are opposing the Avant clock. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, I, I was kind of puzzled as huge uh, uh, people getting angry about this, uh, people going out uh, w- walking the neighbor's dog because I thought, well, why not do it? You know, after you, who actually hurts me? The point of the curfew is not to get stop people going outside per se. Obviously, that's it, it's just make sure that people don't go off, go out and visit their friends and spend yeah. an evening drinking in their house. Obviously, having a curfew is the easiest way to police this, but the actual act of taking a dog out for a walk is not endangering anybody. And if you had a hard day um, combining work, homeschooling, um, cooking, cleaning, uh, trying to keep your teenagers from fighting, and you have eating haggis, to get out, eating haggis exactly, cooking haggis, uh, booking a piper, uh, and, and you just haven't had a moment to get outside, and your neighbour has a dog um, that you can borrow, then why not? I mean, we talked about uh, yeah. trying to curb this epidemic of loneliness as well as the epidemic. Of um, of coronavirus, so you know what, what's the problem? I th- 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 I'm just, just tired of all this kind of nitpicking by people who say yeah. who point at other people and say you're breaking the rules. And often these are the same people who refuse to quarantine when they've come back from a trip abroad. So exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so what what other rules uh, were brought in? Uh, the number of guests you're allowed at home is being cut from two to one. Uh, funerals also being restricted again, so the maximum number of mourners uh, will be 50 rather than 100. And all flights are being cancelled to and from the UK, South Africa, and the whole of South America, which it turns out is more than one country, um, for four weeks oh, wow. from Saturday. Uh, that's to try to curb the spread of new variants that have emerged in those countries. Flights will only resume once a compulsory quarantining and testing regime has been brought in. And uh, good to see they've rushed that through uh, less than a year after the start of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, it's also uh, this is, was also part of the trade-off, right? Uh, Deze Sester mm. was willing to accept the Avondklok uh, in exchange of these uh, stricter travel uh, restrictions. Yeah, indeed. And I, th- I think compulsory quarantine and testing is sensible, but actually just banning flights. And Ritter himself said it was really just for the Buna. It's, it will have yeah. almost zero effect. I mean, if you look last week, I think 0.1% of all infections were people traveling from the UK. And not all those people who have been infected in the UK. It's just anyone who's been to the UK in the two weeks before they were tested. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so how are uh, the numbers looking? Right now. Yeah, the figures actually don't look too bad right now. And this is one of the things that uh, was uh, came up in the debate, saying why are we putting in harder restrictions just as uh, the numbers are falling? Because we've come down from about 11,500 infections a day to around about 5,500. In the last weekly report, the RIVM said the number of infections had come down by 21.5% to just under 39,000. The positive test rate uh, was also down to below 12%, although that is still two to three times what's considered a safe level by the World Health Organization. And the number of patients in hospital has come down the last couple of weeks from more than 2,800 to around 2,300. So it is creeping down slowly. But the RIVM has warned that the British variant, as we're not allowed to call it, is throwing a spanner in the works. Now, the R number is creeping up towards a one mark, which suggests that infections will level off in the next week or so. And that's because the old strain has currently got an R of about 0.9, but the new strain has an R rating of 1.3. And as time goes by, you'll find that more cases uh, of the new strain will appear and, uh, and, and, and and they will become an increasingly greater proportion and that will drive the overall number up. So if it's expected it takes over in March, we are likely to see a new wave of cases and how big that wave is depends on how effective these new measures are. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and you, you say that the figures actually don't look too bad, but, you know, I always have two figures that I always keep an eye on, uh, mm. and that is the R value, which is uh, still around one. Uh, and uh, even though that uh, it, it was last updated January 1st, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how it looks right now, but a, a number of one is... is, is, is or it's 0.98 and the other number I'm always checking is uh, the number of uh, people on the ICU and uh, Mm. that number has been uh, around 700 ever since January 1st so yeah I'm not very uh, convinced that these numbers are uh, are going in the right direction so yeah hopefully it's difficult yeah, I always look at the positive test duration. I think that's moving in the right direction, but very slowly. And also, if you look at the, rather than look at the day to day shift, because that often goes up and down, and the end of the week, you get more cases than the start of the week. But if you compare week on yeah. week, it's, it went down by 20% last week, and now that's slowed to around about sort of between, yeah, to around about 15%. Um, yeah. it, that, that's, that's not too bad but it means it will take four or five weeks to get down to a safe level um, and of course they, they want to speed that up they want to particularly I think um, uh, Mark Rutter said he, was, he wanted to do th- two things he wanted to get the curfew uh, lifted as soon as he could and also want to get the children back in school and I think at the rate we're going mm. that's not you know it has been pretty ambitious to be able to do either of those things on February the 9th Exactly, because given how how strict this lockdown uh, is supposed to be, uh, these numbers should be going down much rapidly than they are currently are. So yeah, uh, it's uh, I th- I still think it's a bit worrying, but um, yeah, yeah. As you heard in our extra episode on Saturday, Prime Minister Mark Rutte's cabinet resigned on Friday over the child benefit scandal. Rutte decided to take matters into his own hands when it became likely the Tweede Kamer would vote in favor of a motion of no confidence in a debate on Wednesday. This debate was uh, held nonetheless on Wednesday over the report of the Parliamentary Inquiry Commission and on the cabinet's uh, resignation. Uh, Rutte came under fire by the entire Tweede Kamer, not only from the opposition parties but also from coalition parties too. The official report said an unparalleled wrong had been done to parents who were wrongfully accused of defrauding the child care benefit system. The report said ministers, civil servants and even judges had a role in the affair, which left parents powerless to fight back when they were wrongly accused of cheating and fraud. Rutte told MPs he as a Prime Minister is fully responsible for the scandal, but he had only become directly involved in the summer of 2019 after it became clear how serious the scandal was. Even though he acknowledged the emphasis on combating uh, fraud could have led tax officials to take a tougher line, uh, there was no clear link between the government's policy and the scandal. Uh, He also denied the scandal was a result of racism and discrimination within the tax office, but but he did admit that institutional racism does occur in the Netherlands. Yeah, and Rutte himself came under fire quite a lot in this debate, so what did MTs have to say about him? Well, almost all parties were very critical about him, especially uh, his comments at Friday's press conference that he felt responsible, but that he had no direct involvement in the scandal. Uh, PVV leader Geert Wilders said the common theme of the scandal, which spread over two cabinet terms, was Prime Minister Mark Rutte, and fresh Labour leader Liliane Ploume said Rutte's fingerprints were on every page in the dossier. Uh, even coalition leader Rob Jette said Rutte's explanation was too little, and he urged the Prime Minister to, uh, to do a little 
little bit more of uh, self-reflection. Um, VVD leader Klaas Dijkhoff, however, pointed out that the parliament itself also had a large role in the scandal because after all, it was the Tweede Kamer who voted in favor of the anti-fraud laws, which were written after uh, the parliament urged the cabinet to do more to tackle uh, benefit fraud. And uh, almost all parties joined him in this uh, analysis. Yeah, sure. And one of the MPs has been very much at the front of uh, this uh, campaign to expose uh, the tax officer's excesses here is uh, Peter Omzicht, uh, the Christian Democrat MP, and he gave a really powerful speech as well, didn't he? Yes, he did. Um, uh, as you said, he worked very hard for many years uh, together with SP uh, MP Renske Leiter to uncover the scandal. Uh, and, and he was the only backbencher who participated in the debate, even though he's mm. the number two. Can you still call him a backbencher if he is the number two uh, on the candidate list? Well, kind of, yes, I don't know. Um, maybe because in, in this parliament he, was, he wasn't he was number two, was he? In fact, he got any num- did he not get any on preference votes? Was that last time? Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank God, uh, we have to say. Indeed. Uh, he yeah. was... He, he was the only uh, uh, he was the only MP that wasn't a party leader that participated in this debate, uh, mm. and he called the Netherlands a banana monarchy, uh, and he uh, criticized the intimate relation between the cabinet and the press and the cabinet and the Tweede Kamer. Mm. He also uh, was also very critical about the so-called uh, Rutte doctrine, uh, that is the practice that the cabinet actively tries to uh, withhold as much information as possible from MPs and the press uh, and this resulted in for example in the infamous uh, binders that were completely redacted uh, yeah a although of, actually uh, months yeah, ago. when you hear more about the Ritter doctrine you're surprised they actually managed to find as many documents as they did to in order to black out because it seems that they <laughs> they hardly ever take minutes of meetings at all so <laughs> yeah yeah well the the the, the binders that were blacked out were the um, personal dossiers of the people uh, oh, uh, yes, of the tax yes. office yeah. so um, which by the way were um, 9000 of these dossiers were um, uh, all of a sudden uh, um, deleted and um, yeah they disappeared and they disappeared and they were um, uh, uh, yeah uh, uh, they, they went through the sh- uh, shredder even though uh, that wasn't supposed to happen uh, uh, for many years mm-hmm. um, uh, but yeah Rutte is known for uh, for having these informal um, uh, 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 meetings so uh, what he does he never writes something down there's never uh, uh, an aide that takes notes and mm. um, uh, what Peter Omzicht is saying is that uh, he does this to avoid um, uh, information coming out or, or yeah. damning information or uh, things that he could be blamed for. Um, he he's also uh, uses a, a very old Nokia phone, for example, he, uh, mm. very famously, and he always texts people or, or preferably calls people um, yeah. whenever he, he talks to them. And that is because he doesn't want to leave a paper trail or so yeah. uh, so he is accused of. Um, yeah. He basically takes his uh, communication strategy from uh, the gangsters in the wire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're very, ro- very right. Yeah, indeed. Um, he just doesn't want to leave a paper trail. And uh, yeah, that yeah. is very, very worrying for uh, for journalists who want to uh, uncover stuff, but also yeah, for MPs who have to check uh, the, the, the cabinet, of course. Yeah, exactly. It makes it harder for them to scrutinize the government effectively, which is which is their job. 
That's what they're there for. So, yeah, I think the Ruta Doctrine is one of those things that's going to come under uh, focus uh, as, as, as uh, in the ne- during the next cabinet term uh, to ensure more transparency of documents. Yeah, and, and all the opposition MPs are, are, are uh, using the word Ruta Doctrine as much as possible as they yes. can. So uh, uh, it's already part of the uh, part of the um, uh, of the election campaign, I think. Absolutely, um, yeah. Um, Rutte offered Omtzigt and Leiter his personal apologies for the lack of information provided to Parliament. And in a press conference on Friday, Rutte announced the cabinet will break with the with this practice and will uh, from now on uh, proactively send all related documents after a decision is made of a uh, bill, of a new policy or whatever. Uh, they will send this uh, all these related documents to the Tweede Kamer. Um, and this will include civil servants' personal policy opinions and advices, uh, which were used to be blacked out before documents were released. Hmm, that's interesting, because in theory, obviously ministers are supposed to take responsibility for what civil servants write. So Yeah, um, yeah. yeah indeed. Hmm. And uh, what else uh, has uh, Rutte promised to change? Well, apart from more transparency and openness, Rutte promised to compensate the 26,000 victims of the scandal as quickly as possible. But yeah, we we, ha- we heard these promises <laughs> on yes. many occasions Constantly. before. So Yeah, the, the parents must just be sick to the back teeth of hearing politicians say you will get your money and then not seeing it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, finally, they will uh, take some action. And he also announced that uh, the all-or-nothing policy will be abolished uh, in the uh, in the benefit um, uh, system, uh, and the looser enforcement of the rules will be introduced. So, uh, whenever someone uh, makes an error or, or or makes a spelling mistake or whatever on a form, mm. they will not be uh, forced to pay back all the money they have received. Um, the toeslagen system will also be reformed, uh, but he warned that this will be a very long. Process. Um, additionally, a better system to detect problems with laws will be introduced. One proposal is to evaluate all new laws a year after introduction to check if they have the desired effect or to spot uh, problems with their execution. And last but not least, problems with racism and discrimination will also be tackled, but um, a real strategy still has to be um, uh, 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 drawn and uh, written down. Yeah, that sounds like another kind of vague promise, really, doesn't it? So always well saying we'll we'll tackle racism, but um, you keep hearing you keep hearing that. And Ritter's standard line in the past has been, well, racism is illegal, so that or discrimination is illegal, so yeah. therefore, you know, what, what's we don't need any more commissions or any more um, uh, assessment systems. But uh, yeah, we'll have to see what comes out of that. But it's it interesting that uh, you know it's quite clear, given the uh, when you look at the profile, of the families who are affected that uh, institutional racism had a very big part to play and yet it's still even now being kind of downplayed as not really a priority yeah exactly um, and uh, he said uh, he personally don't think um, uh, 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 there's a problem with uh, with uh, registrating um, people's uh, dual nationality for example mm. uh, but he did announce that this will uh, this practice will be abolished because it's uh, it's illegal after all already so yeah, um, yeah they yeah. weren't supposed to be doing it the vaccination program continued to be rolled out this week with all the speed and urgency of an organ grinder cranking up a Wurlitzer. To date, around 100,000 people have had their first jab in the Netherlands. That's 0.6% of the population. That compares to 1.5% in Germany, 3.1% in Denmark and 7.5% in the UK. But of course, these are all just symbolic vaccinations. <laughs> yeah. According to Hugo de Jonge. Exactly. This week, yeah. 
This week, the first injections were given to elderly people in care homes and those with mental disabilities. The next stage of the plan starts next week, when it's the turn of people over 90 living at home and family doctors. And the week after that, they'll roll out to the over 85s. Uh, Health Minister Hugo de Jonge said this week that the gap between the two doses is being extended from three weeks to six weeks so that more people can get their first vaccination earlier. And apparently that's safe, but the Dutch director of Pfizer, Mark Capitain, said he couldn't guarantee the vaccine would still be 95% effective, but the decision was understandable because of the more virulent new strains and just the, uh, the, the fact that the, 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 the Dutch government's been taking, taking forever to get the vaccines uh, off the ground. Yeah, exactly. Um, do we know what is the bottleneck in this vaccination program? Because every time uh, <laughs> someone asks Hugo de Jonge, what, what is, there, is there a problem with the number of vaccines that we have in storage? Or is there a number, uh, is there a problem with, uh, uh, with the logistics of, of, of uh, vaccination centers, mm. for example? Then he always says, no, we are, we, this is all arranged. Everything is fine. But what is the bottleneck in this system? Why does it take the Netherlands so long? Uh, to to get this vaccination uh, started, do 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 you know that or? Yeah, no, no, no one seems to really have a definitive answer. I mean, I think there's been no. some problem in the, the supply end. I think Pfizer is delivering fewer vaccines than it promised initially, or it's taking longer to deliver them. Um, and also with the uh, uh, the approval, obviously, the Netherlands ordered a large number of uh, AstraZeneca vaccines that's still not been approved yet by the European Union, but the mm. EU is trying to the European Medicines Agency. Uh, they are trying to speed up that approval process, but uh, you know that that has they're still waiting for the starting gun to be fired there and uh, yeah and and also just uh, they keep kind of ch- changing the rules and changing the order uh, that people get the vaccine um, yeah. so uh, yeah it, it's just taking a long time but the Netherlands seems to be it started later than just about anywhere else in Europe but it also seems to be taking longer to actually get it up to full speed so see the UK yeah, at exactly. the moment is vaccinating I think 300,000 people a day which I know there's four times as many people there, but even so, I mean, that translates yeah. to 75,000 in the Netherlands. At the moment, we're seeing about 10,000 a day. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the, the promise was, yeah, we will start later, but we, we will... Uh, we'll catch we, up. We, yeah, we will catch up very quickly. And yeah, that promise is also not not met uh, yet. Um, but there's also news of a new vaccine, isn't there? Yeah, well, it's not a new vaccine. It's, it's a Janssen vaccine, uh, which oh. uh, was, was being developed in Leiden. Um, it's a neglected Dutch pony in the vaccine stable, but it's turned <laughs> out to be a pretty promising one. Uh, the Janssen vaccine has uh, lots of logistical advantages. It can be administered in a single dose, um, and it's also can, can be kept in a standard fridge for several months. So it's much more versatile than the vaccines are in use now. Tests on 800 patients in Belgium and the United States. Uh, that's because uh, the, they couldn't find the, the, they couldn't test it on uh, patients in the Netherlands because we have stricter um, uh, rules uh, governing, uh, <laughs> but in Belgium, governing medical that's, trials. Of course, not a problem. <laughs> but in Belgium, no one really cares. Yeah, um, those tests have found it's at least 90% effective, and crucially, all participants were still immune after 71 days. Um, oh. And Netherlands has ordered more than 11 million doses from Janssen Pharmaceuticals, which is based in Leiden, and all being well, it should be ready for delivery in April. So, maybe a light at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. So, if... Yeah. Um if this uh, vaccine will be improved, we might be able to vaccine the entire country in uh, in uh, yeah, at the end of April. Yeah, perhaps. By d- perhaps. Yeah, uh, but yeah. <laughs> watch this space. Wait and see. I'm not encouraged. Wait and see indeed. <laughs> yes. 
While the police in Amsterdam was busy with aggressive protesters, the police in Zeeland had to deal with a very different kind of aggression on Sunday night. A driver on the Brouwersdam spotted a very large seal lying on the middle of the road. Uh, he called the police who arrived soon after to try to scare the animal off the road, but when the officers approached the seal, it started to make very aggressive noises. Um, the police uh, of Oosterschelde-Becker wrote on Facebook. They tried for hours to make the animal move, but it simply uh, refused. And in the end, uh, they managed to escort the aggressive animal to the side of the road with the help of a stretcher, as could be seen on a video on their Facebook page. Well, if, if we can't uh, fly off to Aruba this uh, summer, at least we can go to Oosterschelde-Becker. Mitch, I just yeah, want to. Exactly. Uh, I just want to visit for the name, really. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's it's the it's uh, seventh um, completed dam of the Delta Works. Ah, okay. And I, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's a very boring dam. It's not as spectacular <laughs> as the Oosterschelde-Kering, but uh, you know, it's uh, mm. it's part of the ninth uh, miracle of the world, or how do you say well, that? What wonder of the world? Yeah, ninth wonder, wonder of, the world. of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Um, and in other seal news, a very rare black seal was spotted on Monday on the beach in Noordwijk. The animal uh, has melanism, which is the opposite of albinism. And this is a uh, genetic disorder that results in an increased development of the dark colored pigment. A staff hmm. member of seal shelter, a seal, observed the black seal <laughs> for a while and determined that it was uh, injured and had to be taken in. The shelter gave the seal the appropriate name of Melanie and said hmm. on Facebook it is doing well. They expect they can and set Melanie free in March. The last time a black seal was found in the Netherlands was in 2016. Ah, of course, as soon as Melanie's set free in March, Geert Wilders will be uh, campaigning for her to be sent back to uh, uh, Curaçao, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly, Um, Going back to the first story, though, I mean, uh, do we know why the seal was being aggressive towards the police? Uh, No. What the problem was? Oh, okay. No, no, it was just a very large male that that was simply refused to move. Yeah, yeah, it's, so it's, uh, kind, of like it's a, kind of like a kind of like a talky seal, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe a stage in anti-vax protest uh, or an anti-curfew <laughs> protest. I don't know. That could be yeah. it. Yeah, it was carrying a Luxembourg flag. It was very strange. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it yeah, all makes yeah. sense now. All makes sense now. Yeah. Well, in any case, he didn't get the police's seal of approval. <laughs> I'm glad I put that in. But it's uh, it's nice that we finally uh, finally have another animal story. We used it's to good, do that yeah. every week. I've but, missed the uh, animal stories. And finally, sports news. And Heerenveen is a place to be for all your speed skating action this winter, uh, because the International Skating Union has decided to move its entire calendar of events to Friesland, so that the competitors can form a bubble. And let's face it, that's where all the international speed skaters are from, anyway. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. the Dutch skaters took full advantage of the weekend's European Championships. They won eight out of twelve possible medals, including four golds. Antoinette de Jonge won gold in the women's all-round event, which includes races over 500 metres, 1500 metres, 3 kilometres and 5 kilometres, and Irene Schouten took the silver. World champion Patrick Roost won the men's all-round competition, with Marcel Bosca taking silver. The men's event has races of 500 metres, 1500 metres, 5 kilometres and 10 kilometres. In the sprint event, Jutta Leerdam took gold, while debutant Famke Gok just missed out on the silver medal to take bronze. Thomas Kroll won the men's sprint title and Hein Oosterspeer the silver. All the skaters had to provide a negative coronavirus test before they were allowed to take part. Next up are two World Cup events and the World Distance Championships on the final two weekends in January and the second weekend of February. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too bad that Molly uh, left the podcast because all these Dutch names would definitely have... I know. Um, 
She, she would have been very excited about it. I mean, yeah. Hein Otterspeer. I mean, she, she, would, uh, <laughs> she would love that. Um, yeah, indeed. And also, I was reminded to turn off my, uh, my, uh, my NOS push uh, uh, notifications uh, while these uh, European <laughs> championships were going on because yeah. I, I, I don't care at all about speed skating <laughs> and I kept getting these uh, push yeah. notifications. You just get a flood notification saying that somebody had won uh, another gold medal in the, in, in the Sprint 500 relay or something. Exactly. It was a yeah. frozen tsunami of, uh, of, uh, <laughs> uh, of notifications I didn't want yeah. to. Um, no. And are there any other big international events taking place in the Netherlands this week? Yes, there are indeed, because uh, everyone who's anyone in the world of chess is in Vakanzee at the moment for one of the biggest annual events on the sports calendar. Uh, the Swedish Grandmaster, Niels Grandelius, has caused a sensation in the early rounds of the tournament. He's won three and drawn one of his first five games to edge half a point clear of the field. But lurking just behind him are the world champion Magnus Carlsen and the best Dutch player Arnish Giri. Grandelius is playing for the first time in the main competition. The last time he was in Vakanzee was in 2010, when he took part in the C tournament. Despite the success of The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, which I'm the only person in the whole <laughs> world who has, hasn't watched so far, uh, <laughs> there are no women in the main tournament this year, but Elina Rubers from Amsterdam did claim the World Under-14 t- online title last year. You can watch the Vakanze tournament online, uh, because there's no spectators this year, and we'll include a link in the liner notes. I uh, didn't know we had a place that was called uh, Wijk aan Zee in the Netherlands. Really? So I, I, I fact-checked this because I thought you must have uh, <laughs> uh, forgot to put Noord in, in front of the Wijk or something. No, no. But uh, it, it, it actually is, ex- exists. It's a real place. No, it's, it, it's a real hub of chess activity as well. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. yeah. Uh, this uh, during the Christmas break, my uh, my father um, uh, 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 went to a friend, and uh, uh, he hadn't seen him for for many years. And they used to play chess all the time together. So mm-hmm. um, uh, the afternoon before he uh, he went over, he he told me, uh, "Shall we play a, a game of chess? Because I want to practice again uh, because mm. I'm sti- because I'm uh, a bit rusty. Uh, but I never played chess. To, uh, uh, I, I know how to play it, but I, I never yeah. really played it very well. And all of a sudden. And I, uh, I won from him, so oh. my father was very annoyed by this. <laughs> so he obviously was rusty then. Yeah. <laughs> he obviously yeah. was uh, was very rusty. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. To be honest, it was uh, I didn't really realize that I was uh, uh, that I was winning. Uh, so uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's an accident. Uh, yeah, but uh, then uh, then he wanted to play again, and I uh, I uh, I lost very badly. So it oh, was okay. uh, it, it was a little bit of uh, beginner's luck. I think. Yeah, he's kind of softening you up. Yeah. Um, uh, is there also any football news this week? Or uh, yeah, I actually still top of the Eredivisie. Uh, they beat Feyenoord one <laughs> 0 on Sunday uh, in the top of the table clash. So Dick Advocat wasn't pleased. Vitesse Arnhem <laughs> went second with a four-one win over Emmen, who still haven't won a game. So that's your football. Okay, thank you. If you're using your free evenings to catch up with old episodes of the Dutch News podcast, why not think about sponsoring us on Patreon? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us to help you keep up to speed with the lockdown rules, the election campaign, and all the op-hef that's unfit to print. We'll give all new patrons <laughs> a shout-out on the podcast, as a token of our thanks, and we'll do our best to answer your questions as well. This week, we say welcome and thank you to two new patrons, uh, Liz Ansel and Khaler. Khaler tells us he's from Budapest, uh, and I've... Ch- uh, uh, and I've surely mispronounced his name, so sorry about that, but for the last three <laughs> years, he's been living in Harlem. Regular listeners may remember we nominated Harlem as one of the best places to live in the Netherlands, so good choice. 
He says he listens to the show during his weekend runs, um, to, to, as if he didn't need, as if they weren't, as if going out and running wasn't painful enough. Yeah. And he has a question about cycling. He says uh, biking culture and biking infrastructure is one of the things I value most in the Netherlands. So my question is, how many bicycles do you guys have, and what is your favorite type of bike? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, I own, if I count very quickly, five bikes. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. On um, earth you need five? I have two here in Delft. I have one um, uh, one uh, bike I always use. I have one uh, spare one mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, there's a real danger of uh, getting your bike uh, snitched uh, yeah, at any moment. Yeah. Um, I have at my parents' house, I have one, I have a spare one, and I have a, a speed um, uh, yeah, I have a racing bike. bike. Racing bike. Yeah, yeah. racing bike. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Say, are you counting your old like uh, bike from when you were 12 years old and it's like actually far too small for you? Well, it wasn't 12, <laughs> but I think I was 17 when I okay. quit uh, racing. So it's uh, I can still fit on it, but... Right. Uh, um, but if I count all the bikes that we have at my parents' house... Uh, I think we come up with, I think, at least 20. Wow. Yeah, 20. Is that, is that across you and all your, uh, all your siblings? Yeah, so I have, uh, I have four sisters, so we have a household of seven people. Mm. Um, we have some, we have some spare bikes. Not everyone has, uh, has an actual spare one, but you know, when, whenever we went out, uh, uh, for drinks or anything in the weekend, we always picked, uh, uh one of the spare bikes because we didn't mm -hmm. want to have, uh, uh th the good bikes, um, uh, stolen. And then we, uh, I also have, uh, my father is also a, sp uh, speed, uh, uh, a speed cyclist, I would call that a, uh, uh, yeah, he's a, uh, yeah he, he, he likes to go out on his racing bike basically yeah <laughs> let's call it that, <laughs> let's say that uh, yeah. my sister my so my father has two of those bikes i think my sister was one as has also two two of those racing bikes and i had one so yeah i think we have at least uh 20 bikes yeah gosh that's uh, yeah wow um yeah when you go on the racing bike how do you, you have all <laughs> i mean i have one bike uh, i'm on my third bike <laughs> But I've never had more than one at a time. And obviously my okay. children each have a bike as well. Um, although my uh, my youngest doesn't ride it very much. Um, uh. But yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, I'm quite boring. I've, uh, I've, I've owned a grand total of three bikes since I moved here. Um, and oh. I only yeah, trade them in when they've uh, once they've broken. A spare one would be useful because when you get a punk job, it's going to take your bike to the shop and then you don't have a bike for a, for a day or so. Uh, exactly. Or Even though uh, bike repair shops uh, nowadays often uh, uh, offer an, uh, uh, a spare one uh, to uh, while, oh, yeah. your, while your bike's in repair. Yeah, that's true. You get a lane feeds. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you'd like to uh, sponsor us on the Dutch News podcast, go on to Patreon.com/DutchNewsNL. For the second half of this podcast, we're going to be taking a closer look at the coronavirus in the Netherlands and how the government has handled it in the company of Ben Coates. Ben is a writer based in Rotterdam, originally from the UK, but now the proud owner of a Brexit-busting Dutch passport. Or at least he was the proud owner, but recent events have prompted him to think again. He's become a well-known critic on social media of the Dutch government's strategy in recent months, so we invited him along to ask exactly what his beef is with Mark Rutte, Hugo de Jonge and Jaap van Dissel. Welcome, Ben, and sorry if that list of names made you wince there. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me. Perfect way to start my day. <laughs> <laughs> I thought so. Ben, first of all, uh, how are things with you, and are you uh, working on much uh, just at the moment in, in writing terms? Uh, I'm okay, I guess. I mean, like everyone, I think that's a bit of a 
loaded question these days. Uh, bored, stressed, stuck at home. Yeah. Are you um, baking stuff or not? <laughs> I've been you trying. Spend your time? Uh, well, I have to say, um, I mean, for me, the big challenge is I have a sort of nine to five job. And then also um, <laughs> the daycare is closed and I have a child at home. So oh, that course. combination, I think I wrote somewhere that it's a bit like flying an airliner while also trying to conduct an orchestra. It's just <laughs> sort of frantic nonstop from 6 a.m. till 10 p.m. or something. Um, so that takes up most of the time. But, yeah. you know, I'm also I'm quite conscious that I'm quite lucky, really. I've got a steady income, nice place to live, lots of space outdoors classic dutch view of church towers and uh waterways and green fields and so on so yeah very straight ditches yeah very uh quintessential dutch <laughs> landscape around where i live uh, near Gouda, which I, I think helps it's the kind of place where it's harder to find a crowded place than it is to avoid one which definitely yeah. makes things easier and since you've been kind enough to join us so just do you have any um uh, writing projects on the go just at the moment there's a couple of things very slowly in the pipeline um it's been quite difficult to be honest because i think um well, my main focus is on writing books and the book trade has kind of collapsed at the moment in that all bookshops are closed. A lot of people only read when they're on holiday or commuting. So the demand from publishers for new things to publish is uh, pretty low at the moment. So it's been yeah. a bit of a struggle to get much traction. But I do have some some stuff in the pipeline. I'm trying to work on something that's a little bit of a blend of sort of memoir of someone fitting into the Netherlands combined with more stuff about how the country works, how we've handled coronavirus, um, what it is that makes the Dutch approach to running a country different from other countries, I suppose. So we're recording this on Wednesday morning. And, and at this point, we're not absolutely sure if the Dutch government's going to bring in a curfew, although it looks strongly as if that is going to happen probably at the end of the week. It looks as if they're kind of maybe being a little more proactive uh, than they have been at early stages of the pandemic. Does this kind of give you hope that uh, they're perhaps getting more on top of things? Yes, I think so. I think for a long time, there's been a bit of a cycle of the Dutch government was relatively slow to lock things down when infections started increasing and then perhaps a little bit too hasty sometimes in easing restrictions when the infection started to fall. Uh, but this time around, maybe they've learned from their past mistakes, but I think they're also pretty terrified of this so-called British variant or whatever we're supposed to call it, the mm -hmm. um, new, more infectious strain of the virus that seems to be already circulating quite widely here. Uh, and so, as you say, they do seem to be taking a step to lockdown, even though infections are in quite sharp decline at the moment, actually taking more steps to lockdown, which is probably a step in the right direction, even if it seems a bit counterintuitive to some people. Yeah, sure. What got you into um, yeah, taking quite such a close interest in the coronavirus response on social media? Because it obviously become quite well known as uh, somebody who posts quite actively about uh, corona and uh, how the Dutch government's handling it. Well, it's funny, really. I, I often think it perhaps says a little bit more about the Dutch political or debate climate than it does about me personally, because, I mean, my position for the last year or so has just quite consistently been corona is quite bad, which is taking it quite seriously. We should wear masks. We should avoid crowded places. The government should have clear rules. It's a very controversial point of view, Ben. <laughs> yes, and I, I think in most other countries that would be enough to just define you as sane. But in yeah. the Netherlands, it's apparently enough to kind of get bags of hate mail and get you invited on Unic and all the rest of it. It's so provocative and out there. So maybe that says more about the rest of the country than it does about me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think those, those kinds of things are, I mean, are quite controversial? I mean, mask is an obvious one. It, I think this is one of the last countries to impose kind of obligatory mask rule, and there's a lot of resistance to it. Uh, why do you think the Netherlands has been so difficult to win over to what in other countries seem like pretty basic, practical, unintrusive measures? That's a good question. I think it's a, a pretty complicated mix of different factors. I'm not sure there's a really snappy, funny one-line answer you can give to that question. Um, I think there's certainly some 
cultural factors there in terms of people having a bit of a libertarian streak and a slight stubbornness to being told what to do by the government. There's certainly an ideological element as well in that you have this sort of centre-right government led by the Vevede, which is a fairly libertarian, pro-business, anti-regulation party, so maybe been reluctant to clamp down in the way that some other governments have. And you've seen Mark Rutter, for example, regularly say people aren't children and we should treat them like adults and give them advice about how to behave rather than setting strict rules. I also think there's been some issues with, on a structural level with how Dutch decision-making works. The country's famous for the Polder model, which, well, you could spend hours debating what the definition of that is, but it basically revolves around consensual decision-making, uh, consulting outside experts. Having um, lots of meetings. Yeah. If there's a tough decision to make, you um, don't make it immediately. You set up a, a commission, invite some academics and retired politicians and judges and whatever to spend two years discussing it and then very slowly put together a package that no one loves, but no one hates and sort of gets the job done. And that's often worked extremely well in history. I think if you look at things like the famous flood defenses or the uh, recent environmental accord that was put together a couple of years ago, when you're talking about these big structural reforms, that's often a very good way to approach them. And often seen as a model that other countries should follow. In Britain, for example, we've talked for years about how we wish politics was less about infighting and more about politicians working together in the national interest. But I think you've also seen in this crisis some of the big downsides of it, where it's kind of like a, an oil tanker that's very slow to change direction. And when you have a situation where there's decisions which need to be made, which are maybe the science isn't 100% clear on them, like masks in the beginning, maybe they are very unpopular with certain parts of the, the public, like masks. And then the government sort of dilly-dallies and you have a months-long process of hammering these things out when actually a bit more decisive action would be really helpful. In the beginning, though, I mean, you saw that uh, the Dutch government were quite decisive, that uh, they, they closed, rest, I think, bars within 45 minutes and brought in a whole <laughs> range of measures. Uh, I mean, literally people had, you know, half I remember that because I drink. was on my way to a restaurant at that yeah. moment. <laughs> yeah. And they closed the schools at a day's notice and, and brought in um, yeah, these social distancing restrictions very fast and then kind of did the afterwards. So they can do it quickly when, when there's a real sense of urgency. So why do you think that hasn't worked at, um, at later stages? Well, I think it's a mixed picture. As you say, there's some things have happened fairly quickly. Um, in the, the first wave, the lockdown went reasonably smoothly, I think, although they were quite late to start. I mean, still letting people go on skiing holidays to Italy, for example, mm. even when there was clearly a problem there. Letting Carnival go ahead in Brabant, even when infections were rising. So there were some quite serious errors at that point. Um, I think it's certainly not the case that the whole policy approach has been disastrous and everything's been catastrophically wrong. I think some things have gone relatively smoothly. But I think the troubling thing is that on some of the really simple, straightforward things that should have been just almost effortless to introduce, like face masks, there's been really big delays. And also on some of the big set pieces that are really critically important to getting the pandemic under control. So thinking about testing and the problems with scaling up testing and the reporting of test results. And now at the moment with vaccinations, you're seeing similar problems where the whole process has just been very slow and almost a bit clumsy. Um, and it may well turn out okay in six months time but it's certainly not been a smooth ride at the beginning no and it's definitely not hopeful when you see the netherlands um you know in these international statistics you see them on the very bottom of the list uh with the with the number of vaccinations in this country yeah and hopefully in six months that's what hugo de Jonge keeps saying right it's a marathon it's not about the start it's about the rest of the race and hopefully in six months we will see better results but to be honest it's not very hopeful when you see uh, how they are starting it. Yeah, to be honest, I always think that's quite a weak argument, actually. I mean, there's some truth in saying that we need to be careful and set up good systems that you can keep this going on, potentially revaccinating people repeatedly for years. But I think the idea that it's all just symbolic and it doesn't really matter as long as we have a good program going in June or something is a little bit lame, really. I mean, the US vaccinating 12 million people 
the UK, 4 million people, those are pretty big symbols. And we're talking about real people here who are working in hospitals or living in care homes who are literally at risk of dying every day and who there's a vaccine that could prevent them dying sitting in a fridge somewhere. So I think it's a little bit scandalous, actually, that the government Mm. has not just failed to deliver it, but also persistently insisted that it's not really a big problem and you can just deal with it later on and that will be fine. Seems a bit like saying, sorry, your house is on fire. Don't worry. I'm making this brilliant fire engine that will come around and put it out in six months time when actually if the house is on fire you kind of need it putting out right now as quickly as possible yeah has it surprised you or maybe changed your view of the way uh, things are run in the netherlands we sort of seen that things are quite well run and they do very thorough analyses of everything and that uh, everything works quite smoothly and all of a sudden you find that with uh, in this situation um that everything's been kind of done on the hoof really yeah absolutely i mean i won't deny that i think part of the sort of harshness of my criticism sometimes is rooted in this very deep sense of disappointment at the way mm. things have gone and that i think the netherlands is a country that should be doing things better than this and to be down the bottom of the league tables for Europe and sometimes the world is pretty unacceptable for one of the richest countries in the world that has a proud reputation of organizing complicated big projects smoothly and so on. When I first moved to the Netherlands uh, 10, 11 years ago now, I think like a lot of people who arrived here, my first impression was amazement and delight at how well everything worked and that the trains ran on time and if there was a pothole in the road outside your house someone would come and fix it that afternoon and if you needed a new driving license or passport you could make an appointment and get it done within a couple of days hospital appointments the three-day wait whereas in the uk you might be used to a three-month wait i certainly wasn't i think naive about the fact that there's lots of problems in some areas of society but i think when you see how things have played out over the last six months to a year it's pretty surprising and it looked of course in the early phase stage of the pandemic after the initial wave that things were going quite well so down in may and june i think uh, the netherlands had one of the most rapid rates of decline in infections through may and june and then in, in july things started to go wrong and in september they started to go badly wrong and the dutch government's response was kind of shut the bars at 12 yeah i think if you look up the words complacency in a dictionary these days there probably should just be a photo of a, a crowded bar somewhere in the netherlands in july or august um where as you say in the first wave it went didn't go fantastically well a lot of people died but the situation was brought quite effectively under control but the problem was then i think the government and the public thought hooray we've done it you literally had that press conference where margaret gave a big bunch of flowers to his sign language interpreter and there's this real perception that you know we've won the war the crisis is over mm. when actually i think anyone if you gave it even just a few minutes of thought anyone who had followed it even slightly would see this is really the beginning of a very long struggle and ironically now the government is the one saying it's a marathon not a sprint yeah now in a situation where we're looking at more measures possibly a curfew and we're in lockdown currently in the moment uh, until february the 9th and yet the elections are still going to go ahead uh, in the middle of march it doesn't seem to be any any real talk about whether that is or isn't a good idea when elections in other countries like france the united states seem to have triggered a an upswing in uh, in infections so do, do you yes, think that should be more of a discussion point <laughs> i think it probably should be at least discussed i don't actually have a very strong view about it i won't pretend to know much about the logistics of it all. I would have thought the Netherlands is the kind of country that could arrange an election safely and you could have more electronic voting or social distancing at polling booths and those kind of things wouldn't be too hard to pull off. But I mean, as we just discussed, my faith in the ability of the state to pull these things off is maybe not once it once was. Um, Sticking with the theme of politics, one of the things that's most surprising to me actually is the way that support for the government has not just held up, but increased. I mean, I'm not a sort of fanatical partisan supporter of or or critic of any one party but the idea that you've had 10 to 15,000 people dead depending on which figures you agree with um, slowest vaccination in Europe economy in collapse and yet the governing party is on course to the main governing party to pick up maybe 10 seats in parliament 
get mm. perhaps twice as many votes in terms of vote share as the next biggest party. I think it's quite extraordinary. That's something that political scientists will probably be writing books about in years to come. Yeah, I guess that speaks to the very deep trust that people have uh, in the government, maybe not the party in power, but the government as a structure, as an institution in the Netherlands that you perhaps don't have so much in countries like the UK and the United States uh, because they're used to things working, as we said before. Do you think that's, that that's kind of hampered people's perception of how the government's doing, and particularly the media's tendency not to be particularly critical? Well, I think there is absolutely a, a culture cultural traits of people having quite a high level of faith in the government and in public institutions. As you say, if you look at surveys going back over recent years, um, things like the level of trust people have in parliament or in the media or in the prime minister, and the Netherlands is one of the highest trust societies where people basically have quite a lot of faith that the government are going to do the right thing and not screw them over. I think that's often been justified in history. As we said, the Netherlands is a kind of remarkably successful country in all kinds of ways, and quality of life is extremely high here, and there's many wonderful things about it, um, which is one reason why people have quite a lot of faith in the system. But the problem is, if you have a crisis like this where maybe things aren't going so well, that makes it kind of easier for people just to look in the other direction and become a bit complacent. Um, as we've said before, I think the polder model doesn't help, this idea that everything has to be respectfully debated at enormous length if a minister for example makes a horrendous error that might cost them their job in another country that's just something we can sort of get annoyed about for a day and then brush under the carpet and move on because we're all friends and we're all doing our best and bad things happen in the world and i think the media also plays into that a little bit there's a lot of great dutch journalists out there who've done excellent work in the last year but you definitely have this culture of respectful discussion rather than mm. harsh criticism if you look at the the questions at margaret and hugo de jong's press conferences for example um personally i often find them kind of laughable when you have this yeah. 25 minute presentation about how it's all going wrong and we're all going to die horribly and then the first question is yes but can i still go on holiday to aruba <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as i said earlier you've become uh, quite a voice about this on, on social media when you get into discussions with people when you talk with people what's the kind of feedback you get i mean for, for, first of all what's the proportion of it is constructive versus uh, negative and also so how much awareness is there among people on Twitter that uh, things are not going that well uh, in this country compared to uh, certainly other parts of Europe? Well, my sense is I think the mood has actually shifted quite a lot just in the last month to two months, perhaps. Um, I think for a lot of summer, as we were saying, there was a little bit of naivety, perhaps you could call it, um, where people thought they'd ridden out the first wave remarkably well and the Netherlands had this intelligent lockdown which was so much more clever and effective than any other countries and you know look at all those poor people in italy and spain and the uk messing things up aren't we lucky that here we've got our clever system and our decent government and i think that narrative has shifted quite sharply in the last six weeks as we have this tougher new lockdown people being stuck at home over christmas has a big sort of psychological impact and the government's certainly not getting an easy ride in the press at the moment um but overall i mean i've still been amazed by how often people's responses just to say, yes, but look how bad things are going in the UK. Have you gained any kind of new insights from uh, interacting with people on Twitter? Maybe things that you didn't appreciate at the beginning of the outbreak? Well, I think um, a couple of things. Uh, one thing, perhaps it sounds a bit cheesy, but it certainly helped me realise that I'm in quite a lucky position. I have a pretty stable income, live, as I said, in a rural area. It's not that hard to keep myself and my family safe from the pandemic whereas others are you know, living in small apartments in the city and you're having to go in and out all day and ride on trams and go to supermarkets to buy food and let alone those who are working in hospitals or schools or daycare and so on some people are having a very tough time some people have seen their income collapse and others have find they managed to save up loads of money they could spend on renovating the house and so on and i also think being involved in that online discussion you see that a lot of the issues are pretty complex which maybe sounds obvious but i think some things are 
quite straightforward. So masks, for example, to me seems mm. almost like a no-brainer. It's pretty low cost. There's almost no downside to it. Why didn't the government do that sooner? Mm. But if you're talking about things like school closures, it's a much more complicated picture where it's pretty clear that schools, particularly among older children, help spread infection, and that's a real problem. But that there's also enormous social costs to closing schools, even mm. just for a week, and that it's not a kind of straightforward just decision of press this button and this happens and everyone's happy. There's some really tough trade-offs here. Yeah. So, and then perhaps in that sense, uh, actually, the Poland model does have its advantages. I, I guess the one thing about the Poland model that I want to bring up is that it somehow slows down the, the process of decision making, but perhaps it also means that you come out with a better decision. Initially, all the measures are brought in by means of emergency powers by local authorities, but then that was wrapped up in a coronal law. And when Parliament came to discuss the coronal law, they took a long time over it. They were very careful. The opposition sent it back several times, and they came back with perhaps a better piece of legislation than other countries have had that rushed it through. Yes, I think that's a fair point. And you have also often seen the government sort of announcing plans and then being forced to amend them or roll back a bit a few days later, which can be frustrating. I've criticised sometimes, but I think it's also sometimes sensible that you don't just have this dictatorial system where Margaret decides what's going to happen and then we're all stuck with it. According but, uh, to a number of people, we have that system right now. So, uh, <laughs> you've been on Twitter too, I see. <laughs> yeah, one example of this is, for example, um, uh, if we go back to the vaccinations, initially it was the plan to uh, only vaccinate the uh, vulnerable groups in in society so the elderly uh, but then um, these hospital workers they uh, knocked on the door they rang the bell at the, at the cot's house and they said yeah we really want the healthcare workers to be vaccinated too because we see a lot of problems uh, with staff in hospitals that are ill and cannot come to work and uh, the cabinet heard them and they uh, decided to amend their plan their vaccination plan to vaccinate the healthcare workers too so th there isn't only uh, downsides on the polder model in a crisis i think <laughs> Yeah, I would accept that. And I think there's definitely been cases where the government has been responsive to public criticism, such as the one you just mentioned. And I think that's been um, very good. And it's certainly a big plus that people like doctors and teachers are able to have their voice heard in the system in a way that they're maybe not in some of these other countries that we praise for their very fast, tough authoritarian responses. I guess the obvious answer is that you probably need a balance between the two and you need yeah. um, a good yeah. consultative system that puts in place laws and reforms and things like vaccination programs, which can potentially run for years in a very smooth and efficient way, but that you also don't spend so long obsessing over everything being perfect that you just let people die unnecessarily. And in the case yeah. of vaccination, for example, I think that's maybe what's happened. And there's probably literally hundreds, maybe thousands of people have died as a result of that slow speed, unfortunately. And are you concerned about the number of people who say they are not willing to take a vaccine? Uh, I believe um, Ipsos pulled that number to be around 20% of people in the Netherlands who say, I will definitely not get vaccinated. Uh, are you worried about that? And uh, are you concerned about uh, if this number will, will increase or not? I think that's definitely a big problem. It's not unique to the Netherlands. I think every country has vaccine skeptics and the data I've seen, a lot of countries have a much worse problem in that respect. So France, for example, there's a lot more skepticism about vaccines than there is here. Um, the really shocking figures I've seen are the ones for healthcare workers and people working in hospitals and even uh, house houses. So GPs, family doctors uh, are often quite skeptical about getting the vaccine themselves. I think that's a real cause for concern. Mm. I would hope assume that as more and more people get vaccinated it becomes more normal and if you're a bit skeptical or a bit doubtful at the moment but if your best friend has been vaccinated and your aunt got vaccinated and your father got vaccinated and they all said it was fine that is a significant um, encouragement to you and i think we also may 
who knows when this will happen, but move into a situation where life starts to become much easier for those who are vaccinated um, and you're allowed to go on a flight from Amsterdam on holiday to the Canary Islands if you've had a vaccine, but not if you haven't. And you're allowed to go to Lowlands Music Festival only if you show your vaccination certificate. Those mm-hmm. kind of things may be coming down the road in the future. And I think at that point, people will hopefully start to open up to it a bit more. Yeah, maybe see the advantages. You've um, uh, mentioned a couple of times as well uh, on on Twitter, you made a few references uh, to, to your own health situation, which obviously won't go into detail. But was that one of the reasons, maybe, do you think that, uh, that you were more aware of the, uh, the potential risks at an earlier stage than other people? Yes, that probably plays a role. And I've been quite yeah. open about that. I mean, I won't go into details. I think I'll keep the details of my medical file between me and my doctor and the belasting deans. Um, <laughs> but it's fair to say, I mean, I, I'm not sort of at death's door or anything, but I'm probably in a slightly higher risk group than most other people my age. So that's probably affected my outlook a bit. And I also have a couple of my closest relatives are also in somewhat higher risk groups for various reasons. So I have a different outlook than some people, I'm sure. But I would also slightly resist the idea that I think there's this sort of trope you often see in right-wing debates that you can divide the population into a, a small group of vulnerable people and a big group mm. of people who just get a light flu. And all we need to do is protect the vulnerable and then normal life can resume. Yeah, because this, this group of vulnerable people is enormous. It's it's almost one-fifth of the population. In yeah, you're talking about an enormous group. And those people always also live with other people and yeah. work alongside other people. And even if the number of people who are physically ill or vulnerable is relatively small, an awful lot of people have a neighbor who just recovered from breast cancer or an aunt who's elderly and unwell or a child who has asthma or uh, a sister who's pregnant or whatever it might be, people in their environment who are, for various reasons, at somewhat higher risk. Yeah, and I know of a couple of people who were quite healthy um, until they got uh, COVID and have been quite drastically sick for um, weeks, sometimes months with the illness. So th- th- this idea that it's just uh, a, a mild flu or something that only is dangerous to you if you're over 65, I think it's, it's very, very misplaced. Yeah, and I have to say I'm perhaps in danger of generalizing a little bit here, but I think in the Netherlands there has been an issue with some of these basic facts about the virus being a bit slow to, to get out of the public consciousness. So things mm-hmm. like the fact that even young, healthy people can get seriously ill from it and have long-term complications, just basics about airborne transmission and the importance of meeting people outside or keeping windows open, and the fact that you can still have and spread the virus even if you seem healthy and you're not walking around coughing everywhere. These basic things, I think, have not been very well communicated by the government. And a lot of people, I've spoken literally to people working in healthcare, for example, who are just completely ignorant of some of these basic facts, which I find quite shocking. And I think it's part of the problem. So uh, we come around uh, now to the present situation where we're in a lockdown. We seem to have the numbers going down steadily. There are warnings that uh, they may start going up again if this uh, B117 strain that we are not allowed to call the British variant um, <laughs> is, uh, the, the, takes over the, and becomes a dominant uh, dominant version. Um, the mutation that will not be named. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How long do you think it's going to take before things are uh, going to get back to something like we knew before? Have you booked any holidays in the next, uh, in the next three months? <laughs> I have not booked any holidays, I'm afraid. And I'm always kind of amazed if anyone tells me they're thinking about it. I'm afraid we're probably in for a bit of a, a bumpy road to go. Um, <laughs> if you just looked at the infections data, you would say things are going relatively well. I think we've gone down from something like 13,000 a day to four or 5,000 infections yeah. at the moment, yeah. um, depending on which day's figures you look at. So there's clearly a sharp decline there. Um, but I think with this new variant circulating, they're already saying they think 10% of Dutch infections, I think, are from that variant that could easily go up to half in the next month or so. 
so the danger is if you start to open up even a slightly bit, that will just run rampant and you'll very quickly shoot back up. The WHO says, I think you can consider carefully reopening your economy if you have um, less than 5% of tests coming back positive. Mm. And the Netherlands uh, hasn't been below 5%, I think, for the last four months or so. So no. we're not at that point yet. Obviously, the big hope is that um, vaccination can help turn that corner. I think that's why it's so important that you know it moves forward as quickly as possible and that we don't just sit back on our laurels and say, yeah, it's fine if I get the vaccine in August. It doesn't make much difference. Um, that really the only way out of this is to vaccinate as quickly as possible. And at that point, you can probably start seriously lifting the lockdown. It may well be that things like schools can reopen sooner. I think that's part of what they're hoping to achieve with the curfew that looks like it's coming in is to nudge infections down just a bit more so that you can mm. reopen some of the more critical things like schools and daycare. But no, I'm afraid if you're planning your holiday to Aruba, Gordon, um, may, may have to wait. I wasn't planning to go as far as Aruba, I have to say. You are literally yeah. at Schiphol Airport, Gordon. <laughs> I am actually, yes, yes, my background is Schiphol Airport, but I have to stress I'm not actually there. It's just the magic of Zoom has landed me at Schiphol. It's, it's wishful thinking on my part. I think that's a good point to end it. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. And um, uh, yeah, we, we wish you well and uh, I hope you uh, uh, stay safe and uh, you can uh, soon get out and about and back out on your bike out to the canals around uh, uh, around Chauda because it's always fun to see those little videos. Yes, looking forward to it. And uh, you too. Good luck with your summer holiday planning, both of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. And if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can now also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to Paul Peters and our guest for this week, Ben Coates. I'm Gordon Darach, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.